Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This teaching is called The Thrill is Gone and is the seventh teaching in our study through the book of Jeremiah. It was taught by Molly Conaway on November 7th, 2021. Thanks for listening. Hey, Crossings. We are starting this teaching with a video playing of B.B. King singing The Thrill is Gone. Because that song, The Thrill is Gone by B.B. King, known as the King of Blues, there's this Washington Post article I read this week about how the church gave B.B. King the blues. Basically, it's about how the church is the place that B.B. King first heard music. It's where he learned to love music. It's where he learned to play music. And the gospel music he heard at church was essentially different versions of African-American spirituals rooted in stories of the Bible. And it's what led him to sing the blues, songs like The Thrill Is Gone. B.B. King eventually left the church. He even walked away from formal Christianity because he started to believe that the form of Christianity around him and the blues as music were actually opposite forces in African-American history. This is what he said. He said a lot of slave masters were teaching Christianity to the blacks because they thought if they were Christians, they wouldn't steal or wouldn't run away. But some of them were gonna be sold anyway, so they didn't care and would play and sing about the things that made them feel good, he said. I guess I'm a disciple of some of those slaves. I mean, there was this idea among white Christians at this time that the blues was devil's music. B.B. King would meet some of the religious folks and they would keep it a secret that they liked the same music as him. King said they would play their blues after midnight when they were in their room and nobody could hear them. See, B.B. King spoke about how deeply the blues and gospel music were connected for him. The sacred and the secular were not always distinct when it came to the blues. I mean, even some of his greatest hits In these songs, he would replace the words, my baby with my Lord and make the blues song into a spiritual. B.B. King said, there's blues for anything that bothers you. And I've listened to gospel music and believe it or not, I hear the same thing. This week I had a conversation with a friend, Crystal Armstrong Brown, and she reminded me of this. She reminded me of how much we have to learn from the black church about this communal grief and lament thing. She said, you have to remember that the black church, black Christianity was born out of suffering. Like the primary way black Christians in America practiced their faith was through their communal songs of grief and lament about the way they were like, God, will you get us out of this? You know, for so long, we've adopted this idea that faith in God, a life following Jesus, should only make us feel good, not bad, happy, not sad, positive and optimistic, and any hint of sadness or grief or hurt or anger or loneliness is from the devil and it's a lack of faith. But that sort of theology, that sort of thinking and learning about God has at the least given us a shallow understanding of faith in God, and at most done some real damage to the way we understand faith in God. Today we're studying Jeremiah chapters 14 and 15. We're about eight weeks in, about halfway through our study of this Old Testament prophet named Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah is singing the blues. The thrill is gone. Eugene Peterson titles these chapters, The Ever-Worsening Wound. It's interesting that B.B. King wanted to record a gospel album before he retired because he was convinced that the blues could actually lead one to the gospel. And the same can be said for the words of Jeremiah. One commentator says it this way. He says, Jeremiah faces his doubts and tormentors. He gives voice to unease and anger and gives all of it to God. One of the marvelous gifts of Jeremiah's book is the humanness of his prayers when wearied and depressed by the struggle with rejection and persecution. One of the greatest things we're studying about the prophet Jeremiah, which by the way, we're gonna take a break here in a couple weeks for Advent. But one of the greatest things is the way we get this close look into Jeremiah's inner life, his life of prayer. We love that, don't we? Getting to read into people's diaries, getting to hear their real personal thoughts and prayers. Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, says that the uninstructed idea of prayer is that it's accepting and soothing, that the person at prayer is a person at peace in the universe. But Jeremiah at prayer is scared and lonely and angry and hurt. And he's scared and lonely and angry and hurt for a lot of reasons. We've been looking into this over the past eight weeks. See, Jeremiah was sent by God to Israel, God's people and the nations to warn them of the devastation that was near. Israel had broken this covenant made with God and given allegiance to all sorts of other gods and the leaders, the priests, the kings, and the prophets had totally abandoned the Torah, God's outline for the way of life God with God works best. And it was leading the whole society to this rampant injustice. The widows, the orphans, the immigrants were clearly being taken advantage of. It clearly violated the Torah and Israel's leaders didn't seem to care. So God gave Jeremiah this message that if Israel and the nations did not acknowledge the reality and grieve and change course, destruction would come. It eventually did. God gave Jeremiah the task to uproot and tear down to start over, to plant, and to build up. You know, this term deconstruction is super popular right now. This idea of tearing down, challenging the worldview and belief system that one grew up with, that one has kind of built their life upon. And it is interesting because asking hard questions about what we believe has always been part of crossings. I mean, so many of us are here because we know this is a safe place to wrestle with the hard questions about God and faith. And this wasn't just like a theological or ideological thing for Jeremiah. Quite literally, Jeremiah was warning the people and living through the actual demolition and exile of the temple, the city and entire people. And it came with a lot of grief. It came with a lot of suffering and pain and Jeremiah wrote about it. He sang about it, it's the blues. Chapter 14 starts this way. Judah weeps, her cities mourn. The people fall to the ground moaning while sounds of Jerusalem's sobs rise up, up. The rich people sent their servants for water. 
They went to the cisterns, but the cisterns were dry. They came back with empty buckets, wringing their hands, shaking their heads. All the farm work had stopped. Not a drop of rain has fallen. The farmers don't know what to do. They wring their hands, they shake their heads. Even the doe abandons her fawn in the field because there is no grass. Eyes glazed over on her last legs, nothing but skin and bones. We know we're guilty. We've lived bad lives, but do something, God. Do it for your sake. We'll come back to this. Time and time again, we've betrayed you. No doubt about it, we've sinned against you. Hope of Israel, our only hope. Israel's last chance is this trouble. Why are you acting like a tourist, God? Taking in the sights here today and gone tomorrow? Why do you just stand there and stare like someone who doesn't know what they're doing? <laughs> Remember, Jeremiah is saying this to God. But God, you are in fact here with us. You know who we are. You named us. Don't leave us without a leg to stand on. Jeremiah continues, we hoped for peace, for shalom. Nothing good came from it. We looked for healing and got kicked in the stomach. We admit, oh God, how badly we've lived and our ancestors, how bad they were. We've sinned, they've sinned, we've all sinned against you, but your reputation is at stake, God. Don't quit on us. Don't walk out and abandon your glorious temple. Remember your covenant. Don't break faith with us. So I notice a couple of things here. Uh, I notice, first of all, Jeremiah's honesty, his humanity about truly how scared and lonely and angry and hurt he was. And yet his anger and loneliness and hurt does not demonstrate for us a lack of faith. It actually demonstrates, at least for me, how great his faith in God was. Eugene Peterson said this, our anger can be a measure of our faith. Believers argue with God. Skeptics argue with each other. You know, one of my favorite things about my job is giving people space and permission to be angry at God. Giving them permission to say honestly and absolutely with however many expletives, everything they actually think about God and about God's work or lack of work in the world. I, I think it's one of the truest acts of faith and prayer and you see it all over scripture. I mean, it's kind of pretentious and self-righteous to think that somehow God is offended by what we have to say. Trust me, it's a much more worthwhile and productive practice to argue with God about God than to argue with others about God. The second thing I pick up from this chapter are the lines, do something God for your own sake and your reputation is at stake here. Some translations say God for your name's sake. I mean, Jeremiah had reached a point with God as he looked around at the mess and the madness and chaos of the world. And he was like, if you're not gonna help us down here, at least help yourself because God, you're not making yourself super popular. Your reputation is at stake here. I mean, yikes, but also I've thought it. <laughs> so then this prayer in chapter 14, this conversation between God and Jeremiah makes a turn and we're given a peek into some of the details about, you know, what has contributed to the way things were in the world. 
Why had things become so messed up for Israel, for God's people? Verse 13 says this, I said, but master God, the preachers have been telling them that everything is going to be all right. No war, no famine, that there's nothing to worry about. Then God said, these preachers are liars and they don't use my name to cover their lies. And they do use my name to cover their lies. I never sent them. I never commanded them. And I don't talk with them. The sermons they've been handing out are sheer illusions, tissues of lies, whistlings in the dark. So this is my verdict on them. All the preachers who preach using my name as their text, preachers I never sent in the first place, preachers who say war and famine will never come here. These preachers will die in war and by starvation. And the people to whom they've been preaching will end up as corpses, victims of war and starvation, thrown out in the streets of Jerusalem, unburied, no funerals for them or their wives or their children, all make sure they get the full brunt of all their evil. And you, Jeremiah, will say this to them. My eyes pour out tears day and night, the tears never quit. My dear people are battered and bruised, hopelessly and cruelly wounded. I walk out into the fields, shocked by the killing fields strewn with corpses. I walk into the city, shocked by the sight of starving bodies. And I watch the preachers and the priests going about their business as if nothing's happened. Okay, this is a little terrifying if you consider yourself a preacher. <laughs> it seems all over scripture, even with Jesus, that God had a special kind of feeling for the super religious folks. So what is it that these preachers, these leaders have done that's so bad? What is like, what's the specific charge against them? Well, the charge is that they've denied the painful reality that the mess the world was in. They said everything would be all right when it wouldn't be. They said peace and prosperity was in the future when it wasn't. They made promises that were not theirs to make. They stayed busy with religious business so that they couldn't see the reality of the injustice happening around them. And worst of all, they claimed to speak with the certainty and the authority of God so that people would believe them. You know, one of my favorite authors these days is a woman named Kate Bowler. Kate is a history, church history professor at Duke Divinity School. She was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer as a young mom. Uh, they gave her kind of a 14% survival rate, but she survived. And she's recently come out with a new book titled No Cure for Being Human. And she begins the book with this story about how in the hospital, recovering from her first major surgery to remove her colon and the cancer and the lymph nodes and, and, and that sort of thing. After the surgery, she took a walk down in her gown and what, dragging her IV carrier to the hospital bookstore next to the Starbucks. There was a teenager at the gift shop counter and Kate starts looking around at the carousel of books and she scans the titles and she begins pulling books off the rack. Not like one book, like all of them. 
dozens of books. She starts pulling off the racks, piling them on the floor, talking to herself or the books or to God, uh, totally freaking the teenage worker out. She asks for the manager and, and then the manager comes in and she says, hi, thank you. I need you to know that these books are not suitable to be sold in a hospital. <laughs> the manager stares at Kate and she says this, this is a portion of her book. She said, I point to the pile of Christian bestsellers I've made on the floor, books that I had carefully studied and documented in a comprehensive history of the movement known as Prosperity Gospel. I spent 10 years interviewing their celebrity authors and pulling apart their promises for divine happiness and healing with gentleness, but that's not what I'm after today. The manager only stares. Okay, like this one, for example, Kate says. He's saying that God will reward you with money and health if you have the right kind of faith. She takes a deep breath. Normally, okay, I can handle this, Kate says, but you can't sell this in a hospital. You can't sell this to me. Kate says she gestured melodramatically to her gown and she looks away, the, the, um, the manager of the bookstore, she looks away as if to give her a moment of privacy. Kate says, I gesture to another book and then another. This book tells me to claim my healing using Bible verses. This one tells me that if I can unleash my positive thoughts, I can rid of my I can get rid of my negative negativity in my life. The manager says, So what do you recommend instead? The manager starts to reassemble the books. She said, there are books on how to let go of the past, how to live in the present, how to claim a brighter future. I suddenly feel like I need to sit down, she says, and just let me point out the books that actively blame people for causing their own diseases. Kate goes on in her book, Full Outrage. She said, how did you know when you were living, truly living? You were living your best life now. You could see the fullness of your accomplishments spilling out on your Instagram account. The great triumph of the best life now paradigm was that it was neatly summarized. It neatly summarized the promises of an entire American wellness industry. Everything is possible if you will only believe. You can find this confident message everywhere from mega churches to Burning Man. It's expressed in the advertising around Peloton bikes and deluxe yoga retreats. Good vibes, she says, are big business. We can organize ourselves, heal ourselves, budget ourselves, love ourselves, and eat well enough to make ourselves whole. But she says that the salvation of health and wealth and happiness is only a decision away. Will you finally let it save you? But what Bowler says is I cannot outwork or outpace or outpray my cancer. I can't dispel it with a can-do attitude. And then she finishes this way. She says, well, I believe that there may be rich meaning at every crossroad in our lives, each meeting and departure, car accident or chance encounter. I do not believe that God will provide for every need or prevent every sorrow. From my hospital room, I see no master plan to bring me to a higher level, guarantee my growth or use my cancer to teach me. Good or bad, I will not get what I deserve. Nothing will exempt me from the pain of being human. 
So Kate Bowler has spent quite a bit of her life thinking and researching the, the kinds of teachings that, I don't know, I think that maybe God and Jeremiah could have been talking about. She describes it this way. This will be up on the screen. Believers of all stripes started to claim supernatural promises for joy, healing, sanctification, provision, self-worth, business sense, family unity, heavenly tongues, and Holy Spirit fire come down. But the movement did not simply foster hope. The prosperity gospel guaranteed a special form of Christian power to reach into God's treasure trove and pull out a miracle. It represented the triumph of American optimism over the realities of a fickle economy, entrenched in racism, pervasive poverty, and theological pessimism that foretold the future as dangling by a thread. Countless listeners reimagined their ability as good Christians and good Americans to leapfrog over any obstacles. Here's the thing. I don't, I don't know for certain who God and Jeremiah are talking about in Jeremiah chapter 14. It had something to do with those who consistently claimed to speak for God with certainty. It had something to do with people who denied the painful reality of so many of theirs in their city. It had something to do with people who said everything would be all right when it wouldn't be. It had something to do with people who said peace and prosperity was in the future when it wasn't. And it especially had something to do with people who stayed so busy with religiosity that they couldn't see the reality of what was happening. I don't know if there's an equivalent to that today. I think the prosperity gospel gets close and like, this is hard stuff to swallow. I mean, I do believe that the way of Jesus is hopeful. I also believe that it's grounding and like rooted in reality, like flesh and blood and bones reality. Why else would we have the incarnation, God becoming flesh and bones and the person of Jesus? I mean, pain and suffering and grief and lament is part of being human. And to somehow bypass those feelings, to leapfrog over any obstacle, I think, is an adventure in missing the point. We're going to move to Jeremiah chapter 15. It gets crazier. Jeremiah 15, if you start in the middle, Jeremiah is telling God, You know where I am, God. Remember what I'm doing here. Take my side against my detractors. Don't stand back while they ruin me. Just look at the abuse I'm taking. When your words showed up, I ate them. I swallowed them whole. What a feast. What a delight and I, I took in being yours. Oh God, God of the angel armies. I never joined the party crowd in their laughter and their fun. Led by you, I went off by myself. You filled me with indignation. Their sin had me seething. But why, why this chronic pain? This ever worsening wound and no healing in sight. You're nothing God but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance and then nothing. So this is much of the same kind of prayer Jeremiah has been praying throughout the whole book. This is the ever worsening wound. 
the thrill is gone. And normally here, in response to this, if you look at the literary patterns, the back and forth between God and a prophet, you would get some sort of response from God, some form of um, assurance about God's presence, about God's power, maybe about God's compassion, but that's not what happens here. This is fascinating. Verse 19, this is how God answered Jeremiah. Take back those words and I'll take you back. Then you'll stand tall before me. Use words truly and well. Don't stoop to cheap whining. Then, but only then, you'll speak for me. Let your words change them. Don't change your words to suit them. I'll turn you into a steel wall, a thick steel wall, impregnable. They'll attack you, but won't put a dent in you because I'm at your side, defending and delivering. God's decree, I'll deliver you from the grip of the wicked. I'll get you out of the clutch of the ruthless. God tells Jeremiah, use words truly and well. Don't stoop to cheap whining. Basically says the fright, the loneliness, the anger, the hurt. I understand that, Jeremiah, but I won't indulge you in it. Don't wallow in it. Turn away from it. This is about you too, Jeremiah, and you've taken it too far. He says, if you will turn from this place you're in now, then I will restore you to this prophetic office, the work I gave you to do in the first place. Abraham Heschel said that it had developed that the prophet's indignation was stronger than God's anger. That the divine anger, that the prophet's divine anger and passion went beyond the divine God's anger and passion. Jeremiah had taken it too far. Jeremiah was given this job to uproot, to tear down, and to start over building and planting. But then he started uprooting and digging up too much soil along the way. I mean, for the gardeners listening, what happens when you dig up too much soil when you're weeding the garden? And then there's nothing left. There's nothing to plant in. And he started tearing down anything in sight without much thought or wisdom to the destruction. Use words truly and well, God says. Don't stoop to cheap whining. Here's the warning I picked up from this. Here's the warning at least I took away. And I want to be very careful how I say this. Because we've taken eight weeks to give attention to the importance of the destruction, the tearing down, the uprooting. And I don't want this to sound like that process is something we can move through or get over quickly. But in our own deconstruction, however that's happening for you, whatever that means for you, and the ways we are doing our own tearing down, questioning, rethinking this whole set of beliefs and worldview, this stuff we've built our lives upon, I think there comes a point Man, I hope there comes a point when God says, too much, Jeremiah, too much, Molly. Don't cheapen this by wallowing in it. 
think it's a point when all of the words and the podcasts and the blogs and the books and the cynicism and the anger start doing more harm than good and start stealing from any hope for a future of starting over, planting and building. I think that this is important to keep in mind, especially right now when the world of faith deconstruction is so popular, when there is a growing market, so money tied to this kind of stuff. I mean, does this make sense? Caleb said it this way, just because there's a sledgehammer in your hand doesn't mean you can go around smashing everything and everyone to pieces. Like it's actually okay, it's actually a good thing to admit that maybe we, maybe you, maybe I have come to a point when it all feels like cheap whining and swinging a sledgehammer around without thought or cause. That's where Jeremiah was. I mean, it means Jeremiah, it means maybe we are allowing space and resource and energy to actually start putting some of these pieces back together. Another Caleb line, he said, it means everything you've built is in flames, but you're escaping the house with clothes that smell like fire and smoke in your lungs. You know, there's this baggage, church baggage filled word for this turn, this kind of like escape. It's called repentance. Like the actual word for repentance is turn or return. In Hebrew, it's the word shuv. And God actually, in telling Jeremiah that he's taken it too far, he does this play on words with this word shuv. In verse 19, again, it says, therefore, says God, therefore says to the, therefore, thus says the Lord, if you turn, shuv, back, I will return, shuv, to you, and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall serve as my mouth. It is they who will turn, shuv, to you not you who will turn shuv to them. See, there is this invitation by the God of the universe to Jeremiah and I believe to us to take a good look at the way we're living as individuals, more importantly, as a community to tear up and to pull down the things that are not shalom the things that are not the way God intends them to be. And at the same time, there is an invitation to shuv, to return, to find our way back to God. We take common meal each week. You might call it the Eucharist or Lord's Supper or communion. This is a shuv thing. This is like an altar call if you grew up with that. This is the call to repentance if you grew up with that. And it's there for you to take if you'd like. Bread or cracker as the body of Christ, juice as the blood of Christ. And maybe this invitation to common meal today is an invitation or even permission to shuv, to start the return journey, building, 
and planting. It might not be, don't rush it. Maybe the invitation to come and meal today is simply an invitation and permission to turn just slightly more in the direction of God, more in the direction of Christ. Whatever it is, wherever you are, we invite you to take this meal with us today. Would you pray with me? Father God, there's so much here. There's so much going on for Jeremiah. And it's funny, I find myself saying the same thing in our world. There's so much going on in the world. So many different people trying to tell us how to be, how to pray, how to approach you. And God, I'm not always sure who to listen to. I'm not always sure the right way to go. I'm not always sure if I've gone too far. And so God, I pray for all of us that you would show us when it is time for the return journey to turn a little bit more toward you. Knowing that we're not doing that for health and wealth and riches. But we're doing that as a way to be faithful. Because God, you have been so faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen.